0: on between Terry and I this week, and this message resonates, we have been in the middle of a sermon series called Resilient, Following Jesus for Life. It's resiliency is that, that bounce-back kind of quality that our faith desperately needs if it's going to stand the test of time and weather the storms of life. But resiliency isn't just about surviving. Resiliency is about our faith thriving. We come to Jesus, we follow him, because he's the one with the words of life. He's the one who is the vine, our source. So as I set out to craft this series, I, I had several ideas about ways that we conceptualize Christian faith wrongly. Ways that we are set up to fail. Ways that we get in trouble when hard times come and our faith crashes against the rocks of life. So in the first message, it was about magical thinking, It's one of those conceptual ways that we misunderstand the faith. In that message, we read the account in Acts where Peter encounters Simon, the sorcerer, in Samaria, and he wants to buy the power to lay hands on people and then receive the Holy Spirit. Peter rebukes him sternly, and we think of that as a weird kind of event in the life of the church, but I would say that there's a lot of Christians today, way too many Christians today, who still have a magical kind of view of faith. They still have a view of faith in which they want to wield faith like a tool at their disposal. They still want the reins of faith and have control and treat faith like a means to another end. And this this affects traditionalists and progressives alike. And in contrast to this, I think the Bible presents a, a completely different picture of faith. A picture of faith that is covenantal, a relationship built on trust that God enters into with God's people, the church, And we pledge ourselves to God, and God pledges himself to us. People covenant with one another because they trust the other person's character. People enter into contracts because they don't trust each other. So that's what we talked about in the first message. But then I went away for a week. I went away to a pastor's conference uh, hosted by the denomination that we're a part of, the ECC. And every time I go to this conference, I'm just blown away. Be, not because of, like, big-name speakers or anything like that, not because of programs, but because of the, the people, the men and women, the pastors who uh, have invested in my life over the years, who've walked with me, who've uh, prayed with me, who've really been by my side and sat with me through hard times. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that, that week. If there's any resiliency in my faith, it's not because I had all the right thinking or because I didn't have the wrong thinking If I have resiliency in my faith, it's because of the people of God. It's because of mentors. It's because of peers, sisters and brothers who've come alongside me, who've who've sat with me in hard times, who've been uh, encouragers, who've given me wise counsel, who've checked in on me. And my experience is actually confirmed by recent research. Uh, There was a study done last year of Syrian uh, youth, refugees, that were displaced by war. And it concluded that resiliency is not, a, it's not something that you're inborn with. It's not inherent in some kids and not other kids. It's a collective and social strength. It's something that's derived from friendships and community. So what I realized was that I had gone about thinking about this series all wrong, and I had to like scrap it and start over. So last week, I did a U-turn, and I talked about these mentors in my life. And I talked about the ways in which they have invested in my life at critical points. Uh, this book called The Other Westmore calls them inflection points. Inflection points in my journey where I could have gone this way or I could have gone that way. But people filled with the Holy Spirit were with me during those times. They opened their hearts to me. They opened their homes to me. They did life-on-life discipleship with me. And that transformed my life. So I challenged Roots Covenant Church to be that kind of church, to be a community for misfits people that don't belong, and open our hearts, open our homes, and do life-on-life discipleship. So as we continue exploring resiliency this week, uh, I'm going to call this message Rhythms of Resistance. And that should make sense more later. But before we look at the text for this morning, would you pray with me? God of liberation, thank you that you delight in human beings and you desire to restore in us the image of God. Thank you that in Christ you have done just that. Through his incarnation, through his ministry among the poor and outcast, through his teachings, through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Holy Spirit. May we live into his liberating story. Set us free from every narrative that seeks to write us into slavery again. Set us free from every dehumanizing ideology, and set us free to worship you in spirit and in truth. This morning, I ask that you would illuminate your word by your spirit to our hearts and minds. Speak through me, use my words, and let them be your words. We pray. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, so the passage we're going to look at this morning is near and dear to my heart, I think it's the very first passage that I ever memorized as a Christian. You know, I I think I probably knew John 3.16 or something, but this is the one that really set me on a journey. And uh, for context, it comes from Paul's letter to the disciples at Rome, and Paul has just spent 11 chapters writing some of the most densely packed and highly complex revelatory Christian theology ever written. But in this passage, the one we're going to look at in just a second, he turns a corner. This is the hinge on which all of that lofty and esoteric ideas gets condensed down into concrete, accessible practices. For 11 chapters, Paul's been talking about the redemptive love of God and how it's created this new multi-ethnic family. But right here is the point at which the letter gets really specific and really directive. Do these things. For the rest of the, rest of the uh, book, he's giving commands, he's telling them who to pray for, how to eat together because of their cultural differences, and he sends greetings to people. So this is, this is kind of the hinge. Uh, if you have a translation of the New Testament, you can turn in it to Romans chapter 12. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen behind me. I'm going to be reading from the CEB translation. I'll go slow because it's only two verses. So, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, everybody say God's mercies, God's mercies. I encourage you to present your bodies, say bodies, bodies, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly service. Do not be conformed, everybody say conformed, to the patterns of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you could figure out what is God's will, what is good and pleasing and mature. I like that translation. It's a good one. So how many of you know that churches love acronyms? (laughs) Every church I've been a part of has had one acronym or two, right? Like, Like how many of you learned the ACTS acronym for prayer? Am I the only one? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I still think of that when I pray sometimes. I'm like, oh, i got to start with adoration. Well, Roots has conveniently organized our core values into an acronym. Guess what that acronym is? Core. It's C-O-R-E. Christ Offering, Reconciling, and Expecting. Well, I want to uh, sear into your brain this morning, hopefully, Uh, A new core acronym, C-O-R-E, based on this passage. So it's easy to remember. We're going to start with the C. The C is compelled by God's mercies. This is the hinge of Paul's letter, his grand vision of the gospel, his explanation of God's redemptive love, breaking into the world. And this is the point where he says, all that, I'm going to summarize that in the phrase, because of his mercies. And sure, we, we tend to think of the mercies that are new every morning. But I think Paul has something very much more specific in mind here. The mercies that, God has in, that Paul has in mind here is when God has chosen a people. Elected a people from all the peoples of the earth. And he has formed a people for himself. Israel. And God has called this people out from the world to be set apart has given them rhythms, given them a way of life that sets them apart. They are not to eat like the other families of the earth. They're to practice Sabbath. They're to keep the Torah. And the Torah guides them in being this set-apart family. And through this family comes the Messiah. And the Messiah opens up the way of God into this family so that the blessing of Abraham can be a blessing for all the families of the world. And this culminates in the work of Jesus in his life, his death, his resurrection, sending of the Holy Spirit. So God's mercies in this context are not just, oh, today God forgives me again because I'm still a sinner. In this context, the mercies of God is the whole breadth and swath of the redemptive work of God in forming a people for himself. God's mercies are liberating, they are forming, and they are uniting. God's mercies are his love. Why? So that God can restore God's dream for the world, that dream that we call shalom, harmony, wholeness, fullness of life and flourishing. Everything we do in our faith, all the things that we practice must flow out of this view of God's mercies. Every time we serve, every time we give, every time we humble ourselves, every time we forgive someone that's harmed us, every time... We practice spiritual disciplines. We are to be compelled by this mercy. The reason why is because if we don't, you will not have resilient faith. If you're compelled by anything else, eventually you'll hit a wall. If our picture of God isn't one of this merciful, covenantal, faithful, forming, and liberating God, then eventually that picture will fail you. And that picture will cause you to hit the rocks, crash against the rocks. And that false picture will lead to probably giving up on faith. If our practice and our experience of faith isn't lived out of that compelling picture that culminates in Jesus loving us so much he goes to the cross for us, then we're set up to fail. Here's some some ways that my picture of God has gotten warped over the years and I have been compelled by different pictures. I look at the need around me in the world, in St. Paul, in whatever city I'm living in, and I see the need. I'm compelled by the need, and I want to meet those needs. But if that's what's compelling all of my faith, eventually I'm going to say, I'm done. I can't meet everybody's needs. I'm just overwhelmed. There's too much need in the world. If that's what compels us, we're going to hit the rocks. And we're not gonna have resilient faith. You know what else? I've got baggage. I've got baggage from my family of origin. Maybe you have baggage from your family of origin. If we have these kind of approval seeking parts of us that wanna please somebody, we wanna live up to some standard that we never met, that could be what compels you in your faith. And if that's what compels you in your faith, eventually you're gonna say, I'm done. I can never be a good enough Christian. Also, the church can be a wonderful place of connection. The church can provide spiritual family, community, friendships. If that's what compels us in our faith, what happens when community gets hard? What happens when somebody hurts you? What happens when somebody fails you? Then you throw your hands up and you say, I'm done. The church is full of hypocrites and liars. How many of you know someone who's done that? I know a bunch of people. Their, their reason for practicing the faith was community, friendships. And as soon as it got hard, it was like, oh, I'm done. I'm out of here. I've had each and every one of those practices where I was compelled by the need around me, where I was compelled by living up to some standard, where I was compelled by community. If we aren't compelled by the mercy of God in our lives, and we aren't compelled by that redemptive mission of God that culminates in Jesus and a Jesus-looking picture of God, we won't have resilient faith. We'll eventually crash. Now the O. The O in CORE stands for offering our bodies. Last week I talked about these mentors in my life who have built into my life, equipped me with resiliency. And one of those mentors I mentioned is Matt Gibson, I think I have a picture of him up on the screen. There's Matt in the middle. Matt Gibson uh, checks in on me once a week since 2006. He's a fantastic mentor. One of the things that he has drilled into my head is self-care. He, the first mentor that preached to me the gospel of self-care. Bodily rhythms of rest and connection. If my faith is has any resiliency, if I've been able to last over these years, it's because of people like Matt who have, who have reminded me time and time again to take care of those rhythms of rest and connection. And we have a especially uh, acute need for this in the West, in the modern West. In the Western world, we swim in a sea of dualism. All around us, all the time are these messages that say our bodies and our minds are separate. They're not connected. But Paul and the rest of the authors of the Bible, Old and New Testament, are not dualists. They believe that what we do with our bodies shapes our minds. We are being formed by the practices in which we participate. Even if we don't realize it, the things we do are doing something to us. So this week I asked Ruth, Hamburg, I asked her to share with me some of her practices of rest and connection, and I was really encouraged by our conversation. Had some wonderful insights. She asked these questions. Well, am I paying attention to what my body's telling me, or am I still uh, breathing that dualist air? Did you know that sleep is spiritual? Getting enough sleep is one of the most spiritual things you can do, because your body needs it. If you're going to function, if you're gonna have resiliency in your faith, you need to have good sleep. Did you know food is spiritual? Ruth asked, am I eating nourishing food? That's a question we can ask ourselves. Are you eating nourishing food? Screens are spiritual, did you know that? Screens are spiritual. Are you unplugging from the matrix every once in a while? That's important, because what we do with our bodies shapes our minds. I have, a, I have a little story about this. Let me, let me tell a quick story. So a few years ago, I lost my keys or something. I can't remember what it was. I lost something around the house. And my brain, before I could even think consciously, my unconscious brain said, run a spotlight search for it. Like my brain was Mac OS. That's how much I used my computer, that my brain was like, oh, it's simple, just run a spotlight search. And I was like, I don't have my whole house indexed in in an operating system. <laughs> like, oh, there, I found it. A keyword, keys. Um, but that's how my brain is wired now because of screens. Bodies are spiritual. Are you getting physical exercise? Are you getting outside? Are you getting sunlight? This is something we need in Minnesota, right? Sunlight. Are you getting what you need physically? In First Timothy Paul, the author of Romans, is writing to an apprentice pastor. And he, in the middle of a section on leadership and integrity, he says this. He says, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. So wine is like Paul's Pepto-Bismol. He's like, don't forget you get sick a lot, so drink some wine. And I'm like, amen. So... You know, this is, this is Paul's way of saying your leadership and integrity, it's not just about having the right thoughts in your head. It's also about having the right health in your body. Make sure you're taking care of your body. And, one, and this is one of the things you learn as a parent. One of the things I learned as a parent, I'll say that. That as a parent, if I'm not taking care of myself, I know I'm not being my, my best self for my kids. And it's the same with everything we do in your job. If you're not taking care of yourself, you're not giving your best self to your job. If you're not taking care of yourself, you're not bringing your best self to community at church. So self-care is a way of investing in our holistic health so that we can have resilient faith. If you ask me what has produced resiliency in my my faith over the years, the first thing I'm going to say is mentors, people in my life who've walked with me, checked in on me. And the second thing I'm going to say is Sabbath. Having a day of rest has kept me a Christian when I was going to give up. We need to have a bodily practice that relinquishes control of our lives over to God once a week. At least once a week. Each and every week, there's another reason why I should keep working. Every week. And every week, I have a spiritual discipline of saying no to those reasons. Every week, I have a spiritual discipline of saying, God, you are on the throne, not me. You make the world go round, not me. I know there are things I could do. I know there's lots of needs. I know there's lots of tasks that I should get accomplished. But, but I know that you are the one that ultimately gets all those things done. There's this amazing book uh, by a Hebrew, Hebrew Bible professor from Wheaton named uh, John Walton called The Lost world of Genesis 1. I I recommend this book routinely for people who are wrestling with the origins debate, creationism, evolution. That's what it's primarily about. But it also has this amazing insight into the Sabbath. So what Walton argues in this book is that the entire creation narrative, it mirrors ancient Near Eastern festivals for, for inaugurating a new temple. That the whole narrative is a narrative of God constructing the world as God's temple. And in the ancient Near East, at the end of the festival, you know what would happen? The deity would come and take up his or her rest in the temple. And I was like, whoa, wait a second. This blew my mind. The rest of God is not a rest because God is weary. The rest of God is God's taking up residence in the world to run the world. God's rest is God's reign. God's rest is to say, now I'm running the world. So when we take time to to recognize God's reign, we recognize that we are not God, that God is running the world, that God is on the throne, and we are not God. So God's rest is God's reign. The R in core stands for resisting conformity to the patterns of the world. Here's why this is important. Paul doesn't mince words at all. He says the world has patterns. The world wants to form you and I. And if we are not being formed positively into the image of Christ, we are being malformed. That's what Paul says. Paul says that the world has a way of squeezing us into its mold like a vice. The world has a script and a blueprint for our lives, and we have to resist that script. God's people are liberated from productivity machines like Egypt. God's people are liberated to form a worshiping community. God's people are not cogs in mechanized cogs in a machine. God's people are image bearers, the divine image. In Christ, God's people are set free from the curse of toil and blessed to co-labor with God in the renewal of all things. In Christ, we are formed into an alternative society, a society that puts on display the power of the gospel before the eyes of all the principalities and powers. If we don't cultivate alternative practices, we will be formed, into the pow- formed by the powers of patriarchy, will be formed by the powers of white cultural dominance. will be formed by the powers of the pursuit of wealth and pleasure and power. Even if we call those things leisure and success, those are the things that are going to drive us. Those are the things that are going to form us. One of my all-time favorite books, a book that continues to challenge me every time I read it year after year, is Sabbath as Resistance by Walter Brueggemann. Listen to this amazing quote. In our own contemporary context of the rat race of anxiety, the celebration of Sabbath is an act of both resistance and alternative. It is resistance because it is a visible insistence that our lives are not defined by the production and the consumption of commodity goods. That's meaty. That's a meaty quote. But think about the children of Israel and Egypt making bricks. Their lives are the consumption and the production of commodity goods. And we are like the children of Israel in this society. We can get easily formed into becoming just consumers, just cogs in a production machine. Sabbath is a way that God liberates us, a bodily practice that we are set free from that. I want you to say something with me. Say, I am more than a consumer. I think we should say that very often. Because in this culture that we live in, like water to a fish, we are being formed into consumers every day. In this culture that we live in, we are being formed into production machines. How much do you get accomplished? How successful are you? Are you climbing the corporate ladder? I asked people on Facebook recently, how are they being formed by the world around them? And somebody, said, somebody wrote a comment that said, I spend all week working to afford the things that I don't have any more time to enjoy. Think about that. That's the way our society is set up. You work and you work and you work so you can buy more stuff, and then you don't have any time to enjoy the stuff that you bought. You're just working. Abraham Joshua Heschel is a famous Jewish theologian. He wrote, The solution of humanity's most vexing problems will not be found in renouncing technical civilization, but in attaining some degree of independence of it. In regard to the external gifts to outward possessions, there is only one proper attitude, to have them and to be able to do without them. We've got to have a healthy relationship to this consumer culture that we're in. I love that the heritages of both Third Way and Roots come from movements of resistance. Anabaptists resisted the pattern of this world called Christendom. Christendom was this unholy, or I should say is, this unholy marriage between church and state. And Anabaptists resisted that pattern and were formed by alternative practices. Practices like nonviolence and nonviolent direct action. Practices like believer's baptism. Pietists were also a resistance movement. They resisted the pattern of this world called scholasticism, or dead religion. And they gathered together in homes and were formed by the practices of reading the Bible in small groups. Those who have gone before us in these movements, recognize that for their faith to be resilient, it had to produce rhythms of resistance. Practices, bodily practices, that renew the mind and form us alternatively to the way that the world is forming us. You and I, third way and roots, need rhythms of resistance that build into our lives resiliency. The E in core stands for exploring connection with God. So here's one pitfall that you can fall into uh, coming away from a message like this. I've done it. You might do it too. What you might do is you might say, all right, I'm going to go do those things that I know I should do. I should read my Bible more. I should pray more. When I became a Christian at 16, the practices that I inherited were a one hour in the morning quiet time with CCM music playing in the background or something, and a one-year Bible reading plan, right? Like, read your Bible, pray for an hour every day. And those are the practices that I inherited. But I found that I'm not wired for a one-hour-in-a-morning prayer practice. That's not the way I'm wired. And each and every one of us is wired differently. There's not a one-size-fits-all set of practices that works for everybody. If I got up here and I said, here's what you all need to do, step one, step two, step three— Half of you would fail before, you know, the end of the week, right? Say, ah, didn't work for me. What I want to encourage you to do instead is I want to encourage you to explore, experiment with different practices. What I've discovered over the years is that I need new practices to enliven my faith, to produce more resiliency in my life. Uh, Years ago, you know, books like Present Perfect and Seeing is Believing enlivened my prayer life with imaginative prayer practices. Um, oh, here are some classics, right, that you can, you can read or check out. Uh, Sacred Pathways. Sacred Pathways has these, these uh, nine different pathways. Naturalist, sensate, traditionalist, ascetic, activists, caregivers, enthusiasts, contemplatives, intellectuals. We're not all wired the same way to connect with God. Celebration of Discipline is another classic by Richard Foster. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzera. Uh, culminates with a rule of life that you can develop in conversation with your community. There's also Sacred Rhythms by Ruth Haley Barton. That's a classic. Um, spiritual Disciplines Handbook by Adele Calhoun. And there's even a book called Eyes of the Heart on Photography as a Spiritual Practice. That's fun. So here's what I want to I encourage you and challenge you to do. Try something new. You know, it's kind of like Spice up your love life with God. (laughs) Oh, boy, that was was not in my notes at all. Uh, (laughs) You got to be careful with those. (laughs) Try something that you haven't done before. Try a new practice and explore different practices. My wife discovered that she's more of a naturalist. In nature, she connects with God. I'm more of an intellectualist. I, I like to read dense theological books. So what's crucial is is that we all connect with God on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, on, in a cycle of rhythm, so that we are resisting the patterns of this world which will form us into their image. And here's why this is crucial. I'm going to close with this. The reason why this is crucial is because our resiliency in faith is not for us. Our resiliency is for others. It's so that we can carry out the mission of God so that we can be those agents of shalom that bring God's wholeness and God's justice to St. Paul and to these neighborhoods. We don't do this just so that we can be blessed. We don't do this just so that we can maintain and survive. We do this so that we can be filled up to overflowing and let God pour out of us into these neighborhoods. So, one more time, I want you to hear the words of Paul from Romans. Brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly service. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your liberating and you're forming and you're uniting love. Thank you that you chose Abraham's family, and out of Abraham's family, you have blessed all the families of the world and created one new humanity, a multi-ethnic tribe, family of tribes. And I thank you, God, for the ways in which you are forming us by your spirit. I pray this week that as we live into the story of Jesus, I pray that we would discover ways of connecting with you that, are, that rejuvenate and enliven our faith and build into our faith resiliency for those dry seasons, for those difficult times when we face hardship and suffering. And I pray, God, that this would be uh, uh, not for us alone, but that we would be filled to overflowing so that out of our lives, people would see the beauty and the power of the gospel. I pray that our communities, Roots and Third Way, would be communities that are alternative to the society around us, that we would tear down walls and construct bridges in our lives, that we'd open our homes and our hearts and our tables to one another and to invite in all the misfits and everybody who doesn't have a place to belong so they can belong in your family. God, we, we offer our lives to you as living sacrifices. Take our lives, make them more than we could make of them. And use us, we pray, uh, to show your your love to the world. And all God's people said, "Amen." All right, I'm gonna. Oh, they're already up. I'm gonna (laughs) turn it over to the worship team for a time of offering. Sorry, this is yours. All right, so now we are moving into our.